0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number fifteen of the War of the Jewels. As we are in the homestretch of, um, uh, we are in the stretch of the War of the Jewels, and indeed the homestretch of the whole legendarium, uh, especially as uh, Christopher Tolkien is discussing it here. Needless to say, we have, uh, we still have the peoples of Middle Earth to discuss after this. But, um, uh, but it's interesting to see how. Um, how Christopher continues to focus on uh, the the struggles. I mean, the struggles are clear, right? Uh, I I think this whole section of the War of the Jewels has been more revealing of... Well, I think Christopher has himself, like, opened up more in his notes and discussions here. About his difficulties and frustrations um, in the choices he was trying to make, the difficulty of, you know, the choices that he was, you know, kind of like driven to the, um, uh, you know, frustrations with his father's own choices in some ways. Um, So, um, yeah, yeah, Uh, it's been it's been fascinating to see. And so we're going to see a little bit more of that tonight as we get towards the really difficult part that is the latest texts because remember one of the primary functions of the silmarillion editing process was to focus on um was to focus on the the latest version of the story that Tolkien wrote and you can almost hear Christopher just like throwing up his hands <laughs> in this section because these are the latest versions that we get especially when we get to the tale of years which i think we'll do today um when we get to the tale of years and we can see I mean he's like, "This is what we got. this is it. This is what we've got for the latest version of that whole story, basically from um uh you know it, the downfall of Doriath and everything else, like we don't we we get very very little other very very few other things um anyway, yeah, before we continue though uh one uh one side note, yes, Katriana, I wanted to talk a bit." About that, our next book, as we're getting towards the end of this, I think we have one or two more sessions left uh, of The War of the Jewels. It was always my hope uh, to finish this up. Um, I don't know if I'm going to hit my goal. My goal was to, uh, I'm, I have a, another little family trip um, that I am going to be taking in, in the second week of August. Uh, so I got this week and next week. And it had been my goal to try to get through try to finish this book um by then don't know that i'm gonna hit that goal i think we're gonna need one afterwards um but um uh but i think we only have one or two more sessions left probably two at most um so uh then we'll be done with the war of the jewels and we'll be 11 twelfths of the way through the history of middle earth but we do have some other things that we're going to do on the side here um between now and when we get to the peoples of Middle Earth. So the next, the book, the book that won the election for our next book is Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis, which is very exciting. Um, I've been looking forward to discussing this book for years. Uh, The greatest work of fiction C.S. Lewis ever wrote. Um, And I say this as a huge fan of the Chronicles of Narnia and of the Space Trilogy, but Till We Have Faces is just on a completely... um, on a completely different level um, so really really excited uh, to do uh, to do till we have faces um, that will begin in September I'm not sure exactly when I'll be announcing the schedule um, probably after I get back um, but we're, we'll we'll finish this up and then we'll uh, probably take a couple weeks off and then uh, come back in September um, so um but let's get back into uh War of the Jewels here as we um as we continue to move through. Yeah, JJ, I agree there's probably not gonna be too much to talk about until we have faces. I am not even gonna project how long till we have faces is gonna take. Um it's uh, oh man. It's such a surprising and remarkable book. Um but um yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think it's gonna be that long. Uh, I don't think we're gonna be doing People's Of Middle Earth 20- Well, actually, David Michael, we might be doing Peoples of Middle Earth in twenty twenty five because there are there's another book or two that we're gonna do in between uh till we have faces and People's Of Middle Earth, I think. Um so anyway, but I'm still I'm still I'm still working on that process. So we'll see. Uh we'll see how that goes. Anyway, let's uh let's jump back in here. So we were um we were finishing up with the Miglin stuff. So I wanted to, um, uh, just a couple things I wanted to touch on uh, that struck my interest as we were going through. Um, Here was one other little passage uh, that didn't make it into the published Silmarillion. Um, Christopher says, for the remainder of the narrative, there are very few alterations to the top copy B1 of the typescript. Remember, that's the, B1 is the, uh, of, the, of the carbon copy, right? The the one that was on top, B two, is the the carbon version. You know, the duplicate version underneath. Um, I notice only the following paragraph thirty five. The one that it was appointed that Ale should be brought, like you know, Ale's trial in Gondolin. Um, at the end of the paragraph, my father added, "For the Eldar never used any poison, not even against their most cruel enemies, beast, orc, or man, and they were filled with shame and horror." That Aeol should have meditated this evil deed, so Aeol is being executed for murdering, um, attempting to murder his son Maeglin, and in fact murdering Ardell. Um And uh, you'll remember the reference to the fact that the uh, you know the the dart the um, uh, the javelin that he throws uh is poisoned and this emphasis on how peculiar it was um that they didn't even and it's 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 actually it's it's interesting because to me in part this helps to explain something that I never fully understood that never seemed to me fully satisfactory and that is why i mean i get that it was poisoned but unless aeol you know which is possible had some kind of like really really virulent poison that nobody knew any antidote to and and there but it just sort of seems like man this is gondolin we're talking about right gondolin which is you know certainly uh east of the sea you know we're kind of led to understand that gondolin is like the you know like the the the, the pinnacle of elven you know culture and accomplishment um you know, in Middle Earth, they couldn't, they couldn't, even if she were poisoned, they couldn't heal her. Like that, that, you know, like the fact that they lost their patient, um, you know, that she was wounded by the javelin and then ended up dying in the care of her gondolindrum physicians always struck me as, um, at the very least, a thing that I would have loved more explanation for. Right. Um, now I don't know that that's his motivation. um, I don't know that, that, that it's uh, his motivation for uh, uh, adding this at the end, but it helps me with that, uh, uh, with that element, I have to admit. Um, they were filled with shame and horror that Aeol should have meditated this evil deed. That is to say, they never even suspected that there might be poison until it was too late. That makes some sense that there's um and the thing that I really like about it is the way in which it adds this element from the Gondolindrum perspective. Instead of adding this what always felt to me like a slightly um well not alarming exactly, but disappointing, um overtone of incompetence, right? Like they just failed to save her life when they were while they were treating her. Instead, we get this overlay of innocence and of like the loss of innocence, right? Um that when she was struck down by this javelin it like it they it completely never they never even imagined um that the, this dude you know that this dark of her husband aradel's husband, whom remember initially turgon welcomes or tries to welcome right um that he would poison his javelin for any reason, much less for use against, you know, his family members or whatever. Um, But um, uh, anyway, um, so that's that's what's one thing that I really sort of like about this edition. But of course, the other thing is that you can see it creates a sort of more explicit uh, link between Maeglin and Ao. I mean, they're linked to like their father and son and stuff. But what I mean is we get a reference to something like this in Maeglin's desire for Idril, right? Remember that um, it was always held to be something crooked in him. Like there's, um, there was some kind of warping of Maeglin, right? That he even felt desire for his first cousin. Um, the the fact that any kind of uh, sort of socially deviant sexual desire seems to be something that the elves just don't experience um i mean that's just as far, in general you know tolkien has said that's that just wasn't a thing among the elves um presumably having something to do um uh having something to do with the um, the relationship between their bodies and spirits, right? Between their fey and their hroa, um, which is just different, fundamentally different from their relationship between, you know, the bodies and spirits of humans. Um, and so remember there's that reference that the, the very fact that Maiglin did desire, not just, not only that he had ambition, because it's 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 complicated by that right like we we're, we're told that when he hears the stories of gondolin from his mother in their home and that he begins to you know uh sort of foster the desire for gondolin in his heart um his from the beginning his desire for gondolin is not characterized as merely a desire for escape right there's so many ways in which you could You could turn that, and I suspect, who knows, perhaps, Tolkien might have done more of this kind of thing had he been writing a fuller, like, had we gotten a real, like, Children of Huren scope novel-length, you know, treatment of uh, of the Maeglin story, you know, the whole Gondolin story. Um, I think it's possible that... um, uh, and remember, he was going to be integrating this into the longer tour inst- the 2 story that he began and tragically didn't finish. Um, but um, but anyway, one can easily imagine a version of the Maeglin story, at least a treatment of the Maeglin and Arevel, um in Nan Elmoth portion of the story as she's raising him, she's teaching him Quenya on the sly, right? Don't tell your dad, but I'm teaching you Quenya. Um, she, you know, is calling him by his forbidden Quenya name um, and telling him stories of Gondolin. It would be easy to do a kind of a treatment of this or to imagine a version of that story in which Maeglin is enthralled with the images of the light and glory and splendor of Gondolin um, and, you know, contrasted with his dark and somber surroundings. and, um, And there's, of course, there's a... Even in every version of the story, there's a rich irony that Tolkien builds into it, right? That Arethel begins by feeling confined uh, and caged in Gondolin, and she wants to escape, right? And then she's caged by Eol, and her son uh, identifies, uh, connects returning to Gondolin with freedom, right? He's in a cage now. But if he could go to Gondolin, then he would be free, right? So the um, the irony of those two things is that's a that's embedded in the story all the way through. Um, But easily one could see kind of dwelling on that and the idea of like the stories of Gondolin being all about escape and um, and all of these like really beautiful and positive things that uh, could be working on Maeglin in all these really beautiful and positive ways. Like as I say, one could easily imagine a version of the story in which that is at the very least a significant emphasis um if not indeed the dominant emphasis um but in the very short version that we get in the published Silmarillion that's not the primary I mean, there's the, that element is kind of there i mean he is interested in the stories of Gondolin and but then we're told especially the thing like um which which parts of the story did he like best right um uh the part that he likes best is uh the fact that Turrigan has no heir, <laughs> right Turrigan has an only daughter and no heir um you know, and so so it rapidly like in in my imagination anyway, it rapidly shifts from this you know this uh this beautiful and uh bright and keen eyed and um uh you know wistful young elf lord um saying you know mommy tell me the story of the beauty and glories of gondolin again um and um uh and then but it, and then it kind of replaces that in my head with him being like you know Mother, speak again of Turgon and tell me again how he has no heir. Tell me about the void of power in Gondolin that I could fill for my own ambitions. Right? I mean, it, it does, yes, that, that he has no male heir, uh, David Michael. That's exactly right. Um, it, it makes him creepy from the start, uh, Mainglin. Uh, it, emph- it, it, it really prompts us uh, to see him as warped from the beginning, which means also, by the way, then, when we're told later on that he is in love, with Idril, that he longs for Idril, that he desires Idril, um, and that she is totally not not into him and totally creeped out by him. Um, I feel prompted to question his desire as desire. Like, why is it that Maeglin has desire for his cousin when, like, that kind of Taboo sexual desire just does not even, um, uh, you know, become a factor uh, for other elves. Um, and it seems to me that the way that the narrative is constructed in the published Silmarillion prompts us to imagine that the crookedness is his ambition from the beginning, right? That his desire for Idril is not spontaneous. He doesn't just see Idril and is like, oh, the Thunderbolt, right? Like, oh, she is the most beautiful, desirable woman in the world. And like, first cousin, you know, be damned. I can't like, you know, rest for thinking of her. Like I I, I don't see it as a kind of a spontaneous, um, medieval, uh, you know, courtly love. uh, I've been smitten by the bolt of Cupid kind of situation, right? Um, It seems to me like, You know, and now phase two of my political stratagem, right? Um, At least, again, that seems to be how the narrative prompts us to contextualize that um, in that way. Um, But um, in any case, the point here is that by making Aeol not just... So Aeol's choice to murder his own, or at least attempt to murder his own son, you know, this like if I can't have him, you can't have him so I'm going to kill him right now, like that's pretty twisted. Um, uh, especially in an elf context. But this little added detail does to me add something a, a significant layer of depth to that. That for him, he's just living by different rules. Um, you know, is it possible—it's possible, for instance, that he specially poisoned—like, actually, either one of these outcomes is bad. Because there as far as I can see, two possibilities about Eol's javelin here. Possibility number one, Eol routinely, unlike the rest of the Eldar, uh, Eol routinely poisons his javelin, right? Um, it's just, like, a thing he does that nobody else does. Um, Ales like poison, love it. Very effective, right? Um, so I'm going to carry around a poison javelin with me at all times. That's one uh, That's one possible reading of his use of poison in the context that we're given here. The other is that he doesn't usually do it either, um, but made a special exception in this case, right? In which case, you'd have to believe... I've come home early to find my wife and child gone. I'm going to pursue them in anger and, uh, but before I go I'm going to make sure to treat my javelin with poison in case I catch them, right? I mean, like, that's worse, actually, in a lot of ways. So either he is just uh deviant from the beginning or his, this is actually uh you know, first degree murder, not second degree murder. Right? He was setting out ready to murder folks uh, with his poison javelin here. Um, but um, anyway, I, I just I think it, this this really does add an interesting dimension. And then you know, so then when I think about you know the the the, the kinds of richness of comparison and contrast between the differences in Aeol, um like what kind of uh, like there's some like nature and nurture questions, right. That get raised with my to some extent. Um, but um, yeah. Anyway. Um, so, um, so yeah, I just, I thought that that was an interesting little addition uh, that we were given there. All right. Um, some more on Tolkien's uh, creative inclinations here at the end of his writing career. I've mentioned that in addition to the very late emendations and annotations recorded above made to the text of Miglin, there is also much further material from the same time. Okay, so he also, in addition to going through and adding those additions, he sat down and he did a lot of work writing a whole bunch of extra content. What was it, Professor Tolkien? Right, what did you sit down with? Maybe uh, another... Another few dozen pages of Tuor and Gondolin, right? But no, that's not what he was doing, right? These writings are primarily concerned with the geography, times, and distances of the journeys on horseback. But they are complicated and confused, often repeating themselves with slight differences of calculation and in part virtually illegible. They contain, however, many curious details about the geography and the ways taken by travelers in those regions. To set out this material in ordered form, treating it page by page and attempting to trace the development in sequence is not possible, and if it were possible, unnecessary. My father himself noted, these calculations of times in ales journeys, though interesting and sufficient to establish their possibility, are not really necessary in the narrative, which seems credible as it stands even when faced by a map. What follows is a discussion with some citation of what can be learned and still more of what cannot be learned of the roads in East Beleriand. Um, you know what Christopher is reminding me of here? Christopher is reminding me of my own class planning when I was teaching the nature of Middle Earth a couple years ago or a year ago. When was that? 2021 or two? I don't even remember. Um, but in any case, right, like in those sections of the history of the sorry, of the nature of Middle Earth, when we were looking at like and now, you know, 14 pages of mathematical tables. Right. And, um, you know, and what I was the sort of the pattern that I was doing, um, uh, you know, the, the the pattern of what I was doing in, in, in leading our discussions through that was saying, like, you know, here's um here are some interesting things that can be learned from this material. Right. And I rarely reproduced the whole thing, especially not most of the tables and stuff like that. Um, And um, uh, that's, um, it was 2021. Yeah. I couldn't remember which year it was two years ago. Um, So we can see Christopher doing the same thing with the same kind of content here. Right. Just, very much like, so, I mean, it's now easier for us to imagine. Because we've seen the nature of Middle-earth, it's now easier for us to imagine the material that he, the kind of material that he's summarizing here. I have to admit, this is one of the things, to me, it's a huge benefit to having the nature of Middle-earth. I couldn't have imagined it. Like if Christopher, you know, just Christopher mentioning things, uh, you know, that... Uh, um, Yeah. Uh, but they are complicated and fused, often repeating themselves with slight differences in calculation. I would never have imagined tables. Now, I know the tables that I'm alluding to in The Nature of Middle-earth were about, you know, the elvish reproductive cycles and stuff, which is totally different. Um, this probably was not just tables of numbers, but I would never in a million years have imagined that Tolkien was spending his time making up tables of numbers um, and just doing math, like doing long division and stuff the way that he did, if we didn't have the nature of Middle Earth. But now that we have that and Christopher describes things in this way, um, I'm now like, yeah, now I know exactly the kind of thing um, because we've seen it. You know, uh, Carl Hostetter gave us a bunch of it in the nature of Middle Earth so that we can see exactly the kind of... um, uh, complicated, confused, often repeating themselves, but slow with slight differences in calculation, um, material that Tolkien was immersing himself in at this point in his life. Um, this is what, so sitting and remember this stuff, this stuff at the end, uh, of all of these emendations. This is some of the last stuff he's ever going to write on the elder days, as Christopher has reminded us. Um, And he spends that time doing travel calculations, right? Notice what Tolkien himself in the line quoted by Christopher in that second paragraph. Notice what his goal was. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? He says... um, these calculations of times and Aeol's journeys, though interesting and sufficient to establish their possibility, are not really necessary. Um, to establish its possibility. There it is. There it is. Right? That's that's what he was doing. That's what he was doing with... I mean, that is exactly what we saw with the the... Elvish birth rate calculation tables with all, you know, so much of these other calculations, all of this detailed stuff we see him burying himself in. It's not like he's totally losing the thread of his narrative, but he's very, very much interested in establishing the possibility of the narrative, right? Um, (laughs) JJ says, what did he do it all for? He didn't care about these darksome calculations, surely. Right. This is what he cared about. This is what, though, actually, I would point out there's a second reason that he gives, that he points to here in that note. They were interesting. He enjoyed it. And that came through as clear as day in studying the mathematical tables in the nature of Middle Earth. Right. What was obvious was that he was having fun doing that, that the more he did it, that there were ways I've talked about this sort of trend, this sort of trend from general myth making to a sort of realistically worked out storytelling and um, detailed world building that and that's the progression of Tolkien's interest um, in that direction, as he wrote as he aged, I think was very was very clear right um that gradient in tolkien's thought, I think is plain um, but i what we can see here at the end, and you know to those of us who both love tolkien's stories and are reading this material from the vantage point of knowing exactly when Tolkien is going to die and how little time he had left at this point. Um, it's hard not to feel sad. I mean, many people had this reaction when we were talking about the nature of Middle-earth, right? Um, that it's hard to read in some ways because you read all this stuff and look at all the long division and stuff like that and say, "What? Um, how much more of tour might we have had? had he spent his time there instead. You know, how much more could we... Um, uh, and, and I get that. I, I, I can't pretend I don't feel that, too. But it's clear that, again, I, I, the evidence seems to me to point firmly in the direction that he not only came to love more and more that kind of story. I've talked about that, and I think we can see that the way his own writing has been shifting there even over the course of the War of the Jewels. Um, shifting in the direction of more and more detailed world-building, more and more uh, possible, to use his word here, storytelling. Um, But more than that, it goes further than that, because it's also, in the end, about... um, It's also, in the end, about simply enjoying and finding interesting that process, right? Um, the world building, there seems to be sort of a point, right? A, a kind of a tipping point that he crosses, you know, in the late 60s, perhaps, sometime, when he's no longer just doing world building in order to support the story. Um, but the story is giving him an excuse to do more world-building, right? I mean, what he says here, um, on the plus side, it's interesting. He finds it interesting. And um, it's important to him to establish the possibility of the story, that people can believe in it, can invest secondary belief in it. Um, uh, those things are, those are the positive side. But on the, on the other side, um, it's not really necessary. Right. On the other side, it's like it's wildly disproportionate um, that he did not need to do, frankly, almost any of those calculations about elvish reproductive rates um, in order to. Est- I mean, we he said what he was trying to establish. Right. He wants to figure out how large a a group of elves could be in the Great Migration and how long it would take them to grow that large from a a beginning population. It's not that that's not... I'm interested in that question, too. I also find that interesting. Um, But there's a lot of this stuff, a lot of these calculations that he's doing that you could say, with using his words here, it's not really necessary, actually, um, to... um, uh, to do this. Um, So anyway, um, yeah, but I think this just seems to me another example of where um, there is a sense in which it's kind of becoming an end and even a sort of a pastime, um, uh, a pastime of its own, you know, formulating these ideas and i think that that's what we see here with all of his calculations and measurements even when when he knows it's not really necessary but he's doing it cuz he he likes it he enjoys it um it seems to me that there's a way in which he there's a kind of reality to it there's a kind of in some ways I know that for many of you, this may seem counterintuitive. For others of you, it will definitely not. But there are ways in which I think the math that he was doing brings him closer to these stories and characters than he was before. Um, It makes this stuff real, even at the sacrifice of enabling him to complete the story itself. But when when I think about what he's doing here... The kinds of things that he is doing at the age of almost eighty um, I mean nineteen seventy he's seventy eight years old um, he he's got to know that his time left is not I mean for for an, for an 80 year old or almost eighty year old man to set off on the project of taking the the the, the story saga already so long that he's never finished writing it through once in his life, at any point in his life. Never at any point did he finish writing um, the entire saga. Um, And to not only sit down and say, I'm going to have another go, you know, at the age of 75, 78, 80, um, but to say, and I'm going to do it in a way which I know full well, to be exponentially more laborious, right, than anything I ever did before. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, I I can't imagine that even in his own mind, he believed that that was a pathway to finishing. I just, I don't think, um, I don't think that he, I don't think that he did. Instead, I think that he is, um uh, I think that he's just enjoying this. You know, I think there's anyway, but so that those are the things I think are really sort of fascinating there. Um, yes, his need for hardcore consistency, which, again, didn't bother him in his early years. Like that wasn't um, that wasn't a problem that he had. And it's interesting because one of the things that we can see, I think david michael and we'll we'll see it I believe peeking through at times in the tale of years is that in some ways in some bigger picture ways, he's not even being consistent, <laughs> he's reintroducing inconsistencies that he seems to have gotten rid of decades ago, right um yeah, yeah, um. Yeah, he definitely was enjoying the probing of his own works, Scott, in that way. Uh, That's certainly true. All right, let's keep going. Um, Christopher's final note on this section. This development of the story of Myglin from the form in which he had written it 20 years before seems to have been the last concentrated work that my father did on the actual narratives of the Elder Days. Why he should have turned to this legend in particular, I do not know. But one sees, in his minute consideration of the possibilities of the story, from the motives of the actors to the detail of the terrain, of roads, of the speed and endurance of the riders, how the focus of his vision of the old tales had changed. Um, I've suggested earlier on in our discussions of The War of the Jewels, there are places where Christopher Tolkien himself seemed to be resistant to that. Like, he wanted to believe that his father was still invested in the Quenta thing. And that I, you know, and I've been saying like, dude, that ship has sailed, <laughs> right? Um, here we can see Christopher acknowledging it. The focus of his vision of the old tales definitely had changed, right? And I, I th- so I think we can see Christopher addressing it very, very clearly here. Um, the one thing I would add is that I have a theory as to why he turned to this legend in particular. I think that we saw it in the nature of Middle Earth because this what we know how much time he was spending in this period thinking about Elvish growth rates and the timing. Right. The chronology, the overall, not the chronology in the sense of I need to make adjustments to the dates. Right. But the chronology in the sense of I need to make sure that this all works, that this all um, has. uh, uh, What was that? Phrase, um, yes, are sufficient to establish the possibility of these stories. And exactly, David Michael, the age of Myglin problem. I think that's what drove him back to this. Um, When he was looking at all of these stories, as we saw in the Nature of Middle-earth texts, um, this was one of the ones that stuck out like a sore thumb because he couldn't make it work because of the timing, because of the, like, to get Myglin to sexual maturity, um, you know, to a place where it was plausible for him to be going in and angling to marry Idril when he arrives at Gondolin. Um, it, that was the biggest puzzle that he had to face in making elvish aging processes work in the, syst- in the ways in which he was trying to systematize that. So that's my suspicion as to why it is that he turned to this le- legend in particular. Because uh, it was on his mind, we we know it to have been on his mind um, in uh, in that way, and yes, I agree. Calabrian was a minor wrinkle in comparison. Yeah, easily fixable by changing the dates in one entry, right, uh, of the Tale of Years. Like that was that was that was simple. Um, yeah, okay. Let's um briefly. So there's not too much um. Uh, there's not too much on the uh, the 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 Ents and Eagles section. Um, just a. Uh, One or two things I wanted to, draw again, more like procedurally, this is more about more about Christopher, really, than about um, uh, than about J.R.R. uh, exactly. Uh, This was followed by a text made on my father's later typewriter that expanded the first draft, but from which scarcely anything of significance in that draft was excluded. It bears no title. In the published Silmarillion, it was used to form the second part of chapter two of Aule and Yavanna, beginning at the words, now when Aule labored in the making of the dwarves. This was, of course, a purely editorial combination. Um, so so notice, notice Christopher here confesses that he has, as it were, artificially spliced together the story of Aule and the dwarves, and the story of Yovana's response to that, and the story you know of Yavana going to Manway and the the business about the ants and the eagles. Those, of course, were, uh, you know, all of us have kind of you know grown up with that in chapter two of uh, the Quintus Silmarillion, of Ali and Yavana, um, Christopher here revealing that that combination was completely on him, right? That he took these two small texts. It's again, it's an interesting little glimpse. you can already get a sense um, that choices like this had to happen that choices like this were underlying the text of the published Silmarillion because of the unevenness of that text. I mean just even in things like length of chapter, there are there are these random very short chapters floating around in the middle of the Silmarillion. The Avale and Yovana chapter is one example. The of Men chapter is another example, right? And you just you can see from those things that um, there's um, there's a lot of you know bitty texts floating around that are being um, that are being combined, right? Um, I get not, again, please don't misunderstand. I'm not criticizing him for doing this. I, this is well done. And this um, editorial combination is wholly justifiable. I mean, I, in fact, I think it works brilliantly. Um, the way in which it takes... Um, you know, that Tolkien himself was likely thinking about the alley and the Dwarf story when he wrote the Ivana uh, and Manway stuff um, seems very likely. Uh, that the two of them go together as a sort of, as a, as a, as a really splendid pairing um, is excellent. Right. I mean, like that's all, that's all really, really good stuff. Um, But, um, but yeah, just an interesting little glimpse into how this works and the kinds of choices that he is making a little bit more on that later on. Um, Then I couldn't, forbear to quote this second paragraph the published text followed the typescript with very little deviation except in the matter of thou and you forms about which my father was initially uncertain and he was as he was also in the text concerning Aule and the dwarves which forms the first part of the chapter in the published silmarillion in the manuscript draft he used you throughout in the typescript he used both you and thy hast in the opening paragraphs But then you, your exclusively subsequently correcting the inconsistencies as in the first part of the chapter, thou, the, thy forms were adopted in the published work. Um, So I included this because there's, there's really good evidence. Um, Sparrow Alden gave a paper on this at Mythmoot 2, now eight years ago, I'll never forget it. Um, Really, really wonderful Mythmoot paper um in which she argued very convincingly. I've been convinced ever since. Um, she was addressing the comments that Christopher made very like this. He talked about the inconsistency uh, of his father's use of you and of thou um, in the um uh in the Athrabeth. And um again Christopher just notes editorial and he didn't change it. And this is in Morgoth ring. He didn't change. I know I talked about this at the time. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, he, uh, um, Sparrow argued again to me, very convincingly that what appeared like, yes, there are inconsistencies in the sense that he sometimes uses you and sometimes uses thou. Um, Sparrow's argument was that this was not merely a slip, or an act of indecision on Tolkien's part, but rather an important creative choice. The difference between thou and you is that thou is informal, and you in within the context of more archaic speech, thou is the the the, the informal, and you is the formal. Uh, mode of address. This distinction, of course, is often very important in, um, uh, you know, in many languages. And of course, it is, um, Tolkien himself talks about it. Uh, You may remember the note in, what is it, Appendix E, Um, when it's commented on about Pippin in Minas Tirith. One of the reasons that he is hailed as, as a prince of the halflings is that he uses He uses thou. He uses the familiar second person pronoun when talking to Denethor. Now, Pippin does this because everybody does that in the Shire. They don't use the formal version in the Shire. That is just like not part of Shire culture or Shire usage. But nobody would be vowing Denethor uh, other than another king, potentially. So they're like, "You must be a king then, right? Um, And again, Tolkien explained the significance of which second person pronouns Pippin was using. is is part of like a little inside joke um, that he kind of gives us there. I, I think it's Appendix C. I'm forgetting which one. Um, anyway, Sparrow's argument was that He is doing so when you look at, you know, then she went through and was looking at the patterns of usages of the of the of the familiar and of the formal versions um, of the second person pronoun in the conversation between Finrod and Andreth. And she was noting that that if you if you begin with the hypothesis that those choices are not an accident or a mere you know, like a sort of absent minded inconsistency on Tolkien's part, but indeed a, an active part of his creative choice, it actually makes excellent sense of the whole thing. um that there are sometimes when Finrod uh, vows Andreth and sometimes when he uses her, right um, he 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 uses a formal pronoun in places where he is treating her with respect, often mollifying her and there are other times when he is speaking more intimately more tenderly more emotionally and he calls her he he uses the familiar in that case um but um anyway so i i that was just a, a, a mind blowing uh paper uh to me and um i thought it was and and I, I as i said i've been convinced of it ever since and so i'm always very wary um And this is the first time I recall Christopher referring to doing this, having done this in the published Silmarillion too. Um, He says that he, as in the first part of the chapter, thou, thee, thy forms were adopted in the published work. So in the Silmarillion, he changed them all to thou, thee, thy. Um, I would love to see the Yavanna and... um, Manway, yeah the Manway and nirvana conversation with the original inconsistencies in there, and see if that pattern bears out there too again, Christopher was not suspicious of the of the significance uh you know he he saw it merely as inconsistency um as he's doing here It's possible he's right by the way, right um it might merely be inconsistency um but I am always reluctant now to jump to that conclusion. Um, so it's interesting to think this. This is part of the editorial. These are some of the editorial choices that he made in the published Silmarillion. Um, and uh, what might um, what might be now. Tomas, yes, thou is the second person singular. That is correct. You can be used for both singular and plural. Um, yes, yes. Um, Yes. Yeah. Um, that is also, that is also true. Um, it has the single, the singular and plural distinction as well. Um, anyway, uh, so this is merely just a side note in the end, right? Because we don't know and don't have the original text here, um, of the full, uh, of the full passage, but just wanted to note that because I think it's, I think it's, it's potentially interesting here. Um, yeah. No, David Michael exactly, even in the the conversation between Yovana and Aule, I would have liked to see which pronoun he chose between the two of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah. Anyway, all right. Um but moving on because again we don't we didn't get much uh of the text uh for this uh other than just like a note about its composition and its uh editorial inclusion. Um Moving on to the tale of years. So first, uh, what is going on? We spent the first whole section of this <laughs> discussion of the War of the Jewels on the gray annals saying, what are we reading here? What's going on here? And now uh, there's another one, it turns out. Whole other annals system, right? Haven't we gotten a tale of years? Um, you know, when it's tempted to, you know, do the second breakfast meme, right? You know, the, we've had one. Tale of Years, yes, but what about second Tale of Years? Except this would be like fourth Tale of Years, right? Uh, and even hobbits might not eat quite so many breakfasts as Tolkien has produced uh, sets of annals uh, of the elder days. But let's look at what Christopher says here. The earliest form is a manuscript with this title, Tale of Years, that sets out in a very concise in very concise form the major events of the elder days. The dates throughout are in all but perfect accord with those given in the pre word of the Rings texts, the later Annals of Valinor and the later Annals of Beleriand. So remember, brief recap of that textual history. Remember, he started doing, he did the Annals of Valinor and the Annals of Beleriand. And then he revised those. And then he wrote the Lord of the Rings. And then he comes back and writes the Annals of right? He changes the title from Annals of Valinor to Annals of Amon. And he changed the title of the Annals of Beleriand to the Gray Annals, right? Um, And then he revises those again. Um, So the first version he wrote way back then. So we're talking about like 1937, okay? Uh, Remember, that's during the time when he thinks he's going to get the Silmarillion. This is the first time he believes he's going to get the Silmarillion published, right after The Hobbit is released. And he's frantically trying to pull the thing together for publication. During that time, 1937, he writes this first version of the tale of years. Um, so since this tale of years was obviously written as an accompaniment to, and at the same time as those versions of the annals, adding nothing to them, I did not include it in volume five. So this is Christopher kind of apologizing in a sense right saying like this is this is volume 5 stuff so we you know we, we go way back to the lost road right um this is um from that period so technically the first version of the tale of years should probably have been included in in volume 5 but he didn't do it why why didn't christopher because it was not needed all it was was a sort of a summary right um all he did was a summary um it's as if he started writing the annals, which, as we saw, always quickly got out of hand and became full narratives, right? So as what began, what seemed to begin as a, let's do a chronological list of the events so that we can keep the timeline straight, so I can keep the timeline straight, right? But as he does that, he then the entries start expanding and growing and it all becomes this big narrative, so he does it again. Right. He's like, OK, but yet I still need to keep the chronology straight. Right. So I'm now going to take the annals and I'm going to extract a tale of years. So it's like the Notes version of the of the annals. Right. Basically, apparently, mostly for his own use. Much later, Christopher says, a new version of the tale of years was made, and this alone will concern us here. It very clearly belongs with the major work on the Annals carried out in 1951-2, issuing in the, latest, in the last versions the Annals of Amman and the Grey Annals. My father subsequently made a typescript text of it, but this obviously belongs to the same period. Okay, so he comes back, and he's revising the annals in 1951 to 1952. Remember, this is the second period of time in which he believes he's going to get the Silmarillion published. Um, When he's actively negotiating to attempt to get the Silmarillion published at the same time as the Lord of the Rings. um, In the early 50s, when he completed the writing of the Lord of the Rings, but before it was published. So, during that time, he's revised the annals. He's now got the annals of Amman and the Grey Annals, but he's going to... um, uh, he's still going to do another version of the tale of years. I still need another synopsis. He's thinking, right. I still want a short version of this. So that's what we're going to get. Um, I want to look at this as another, we're going to be looking at that. So there, there are several versions that Christopher gives. We're going to be looking at, at, at a few different versions of the tale of years. Um, but I want to, um, uh, I want to, um, I want to go through them and be looking at what we see about how the overall narrative story of the Elder Days, and particularly the end of the Elder Days, is developing in Tolkien's mind. But I also want to be looking at how this as the tale of years itself as a piece of writing is also developing at this point. Um, yeah, David, Michael Robert, it does seem to me very much that the, um, well, so I think the tale of years as it's finally published in appendix B, um, was definitely later. Um, uh, like, you know, during that time that was delaying the publication of, of, um, uh, of the Return of the King, right? Um, but it seems to me, it seems to me that the um, the impulse to write up a chronology like that comes from here. Like it started with this. It started with this text of um, uh, making the chronology synopsis. Right, basically to accompany the annals. Um, and that he was following in line with that same stuff when he so he can be drawing on this material in order to produce the the older elements, right? The older material uh, of the stuff in Appendix B. But even I again I think the whole concept of Appendix B is basically derived from this. Um, and I am put in mind of the um the little quasi-editorial note about how, uh, although the dates in, you know, especially for the Elder Days are often conjectural, they deserve attention, right? Um, And that uh, Appendix B, as it was assembled, you know, the Tale of Years as it was assembled by the Hobbits who assembled it, obviously, um, that there was interesting, you know, research that was done there. Um, So thinking about that and the way that we are being invited to imagine the relationship between the tale of years published in the red book and the tale of years here accompanying the annals um it's a it's is interesting right um were there versions of some of these kicking around elrond's studies right elrond's library in rivendell um did he not have a copy but did he remember some and told you know talk to pippin about it I don't know, Um, uh, but um, uh, but but I think it's I I feel invited to imagine this kind of thing. But um, but anyway, one last note before we begin uh, looking at the the sort of the versions of the story that we get through these timelines. Um, And that's a note about. Um, what, are, what, what exactly are the Elder Days? What are we talking about? In the manuscript as it was originally written, the Elder Days began with the awakening of the elves. Here begin the Elder Days, or the first age of the children of Iluvatar. But the Elder Days was struck out and does not appear in the typescript. Further on in the tale of years, there is recorded a difference in application of the term Elder Days in respect of their ending. A difference not to my knowledge found elsewhere. After the entry for uh, uh, Valinorian year... Uh, Valinorian year 1500? Fingolfin and Inglor cross the Straits of Ice, this being the date in the Grey Annals, page 29. It is said in the manuscript, Here end the elder days, with a new reckoning of time, according to some. But most lore masters give that name also to the years of the war with Morgoth until his overthrow and casting forth... So far, did Quenar Anotimo compile this count and compute the years. Here follows the continuation which Pingalov made in Arisea. Um. Alright, so... The Elder Days, as a phrase, is used pretty liberally in The Lord of the Rings. And if i had to define the elder days from within the lord of the rings itself that is if i had nothing else except the text of the lord of the rings not even the appendices just you know uh from from the from a long expected party until well i'm back if that's all i had and i had to define the elder days i would say the elder days were um the days of the elves before the fading times, uh, you know, b- b- before the fading time, Sam's definition, right? That seems to be what we're referring to, right? Um, I would certainly have pointed to anything that happened before the War of Wrath as the elder days, right? Notice that here, the distinction that Tolkien is making, which, note, Christopher says um, this is a... This distinction is not made elsewhere. Um, He connects it with a new reckoning of time. Why when Fingolfin and Ingwar cross the Straits of Ice? Christopher doesn't actually spell it out here. What changes then? It's not just about... One might be tempted to say, well, it's a new era, right? The Noldor have returned, right? The, the theater of action shifts from Valinor to Beleriand. But it seems clearly about astronomy, right? I mean, that's when Fingolfin and Ingor cross the Straits of Ice. Right after that's when the moon and then the sun rise, And so the new reckoning of time would seem to me to be connected with the rise of the sun and moon. Footnote, interesting, given the fact that Tolkien had been moving in the direction of eliminating the advent of the sun and moon, right? And saying that the sun and moon was, um, um, was earlier on, um, you know, had been there from the beginning. So he doesn't say it. He doesn't talk about the first rising of the sun and moon explicitly when he talks about the new reckoning of time in this little passage, but that seems to be a non coincidental link, right? With the crossing of the halkaraxa there. Um, but to me, the even more interesting thing about this concept, um, about this little passage is Tolkien's continued investment <clears throat> in the frame narrative of the Silmarillion. Um, I may seem to be growing marginally obsessed with the idea of the frame of the Silmarillion, but I find it a really, really interesting thing. And I find it seems to me not only that Tolkien's interest in it is being maintained, but is growing as he gets closer to the end. Like I I see no evidence whatsoever that his interest in the idea of a frame narrative for the Silmarillion has in any way diminished from day one to the final day of his working on the Silmarillion narratives. Um, from the beginning, from the very first paragraph, we are within a metatextual frame. The according to some and most lore masters, right, um, is creating a secondary world of internal world scholarship, right, um, in which we're talking about a difference of opinion of what you consider the elder days to be right. Um, But from within the world, from within that discussion. And then of course we get the two explicit framing mechanisms. So far did Quenar Anotimo compile this count and compute the years. So we have records of the Elvish scholar who, you know, sort of theorized this and worked this out uh, and who, you know, wrote this earlier text. And then from here on out, this text, the rest of this was uh, made by Pengoloth in Arisaia, right? The idea that we're having that he is imagining in terms of this kind of textual frame, that we can trace the provenance of these texts to particular elves at particular times and even point to the Um, sort of debates or competing understandings of these things. Um, You know, most lore masters, according to some, um, shows that Tolkien is, it seems to me, almost inveterately thinking in these terms. Um, And I find that a fascinating thing. Um, All right, let's get into the annals. Now, there's another... Sorry, I called them annals. They're totally not annals. Absolutely not. He's already written the annals. The This is just the tale of years. This is the merest summary. Of course, Christopher gives us the later segments of these. Um, but there is a primary reason that he gives us the later... the He focuses on the end of the tale of years. And that's because... It's almost all he has to work with from the end of the Turin Turambar story through to the War of Wrath. Um, I mean, y'all remember the the premises, right? This the editorial premises of the Silmarillion latest text, right? Latest complete text. That can be made consistent with the other things that he had. Um, But there's nothing. There's nothing for this stuff. Some of these things, like Gondolin, hasn't been a complete text since the Book of Lost Tales. Some of this stuff, like the voyages of Eärendil, wasn't complete even then. Um, So how does he do it? You're Christopher. What do you do? What do you do with the fall of Gondolin? Sorry, what do you do with the fall of Gondolin? Well, there's a question. What do you do with the fall of Gondolin? But worse, what do you do with the fall of Doriath? There are versions of the fall of Doriath story. It it exists. So there's a leg up. But the only form in which it exists... So take the two, those two, the fall of Gondolin and the fall of Doriath, right? Both of them exist in complete versions in the Book of Lost Tales. Well, that's a relief, right? Also... He tells both stories in the quest in the sorry in the um, uh, sketch of the mythology in 1928. So okay, that's fun too. Great. Um, But he has the fall of Gondolin has one major advantage over the fall of Doriath, and that is it still pretty much works. All right, there are some things that need tweaking in Christopher did tweak it. We Remember, we, were, we looked at this way back when, when we were looking at volume four and five uh, of the history of Middle-earth. Um, we can see some of the tweaks that Christopher does. He talks about some of them <clears throat> in order to make it consistent with the later stories. And there's a bunch of things that he kind of takes out or glosses over. Um, uh, but he he doesn't need... He's got the version from like the Quentin Olderinwa which is a little bit later than the Book of Lost Tales. So he uses that one for the fall of Gondolin. He can't use the version from the Quentin Alderanma for the fall of Doriath because there are too many things in it that just don't work anymore. That have just changed completely. How many of you remember the stories back in those early versions, the Book of Lost Tales version, the Quentin Alderinwa version of the Fall of Doriath, you remember how important the curse of Meme became, right? That story, the story of the Fall of Doriath was the story of the cursed gold. Meme curses the gold. Hurin brings the gold to Doriath. Thingol takes the gold, right? This is the treasure of of Nargothrond. But it's been cursed by meme, and the curse of meme is potent, man. I mean, it. We were noticing. I think it was in the Book of Lost Tales. By the time we get to the end of what he wrote, I mean, sorry. By the time he get we get to the end of what he wrote, um, we've almost lost track. Um, we've almost lost track of the Silmarils, like that. The curse of meme becomes uh, more operative. I agree than the oath of Theanor. Um and um, more powerful than the Silmarillion. I mean, it, it becomes really the sort of the it takes over um, the uh, the the focal point of the whole story. Um, that's not going to work anymore, and they're. Not only like, so like there are small things, big things, it's a mess, right? You just, he could make, Christopher could make the old Fall of Gondolin work. He can't make the old Fall of Doriath work. So what can he do? Well, what's the latest thing we've got? What does he have to guide him in trying to edit or refine or tweak the last versions, which are again, those old versions that Tolkien wrote of the Fall of Doriath? This, the tale of years is what he's got. And not just for the fall of Doriath. That's just one example, right? For the whole, the second kinslaying, the third kinslaying, what happened at the the havens of of Balar, right? All of that stuff. Um, Oh, Tomas, heavily, heavy relationship between the curse of Meme and the treasure of the Nibelungs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tolkien got, again, I think that's why it's Tolkien's own sort of love for that story and love for that, those kind of, those, those, those Germanic legends and myths. Um, Tolkien loved those stories. And so, yeah, it got way, um, it, it really, they really took things over. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. So let's look at his sketches. Here's the first sketch from the year 500 on. 500. Birth of Earendel and Gondolin. 501. Making of the Nauglamir. Thingol quarrels with the dwarves. Notice. Notice what that means. Where is the Nauglamir made? According to this, where is the Nauglamir made? Doriath. Doriath. Out of... The cursed gold that Hurin brings, right. In other words, we're still in. That's the old version of the story, right? Tolkien's still there. So, there are a series of games I want to play with this material, right? One game I want to play is just what's the story? Put on your Christopher Tolkien hat, right, and try to fill in these blanks. What do we see? About, what What is the story? That Tolkien is telling here, and what are some of these things that are um, um, that are significant? Right. Um, Secondly, how is that story developing? How do we, as we go through, we're going to look at stage A, stage B, and stage C, at the very least. Um, How how do we see those stories growing and changing as Tolkien reworks them um, here at this relatively late stage? Again, this is not written in. 1970. This is written in 1951-52, right? But we're still post-Lord of the Rings. We're still uh, post-writing of the Lord of the Rings. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're at about the time of the early Tuor and the Children of Horian and all that stuff. And then the third thing I want to look at is look at what this document, The Tale of Years, look at what happens to it uh, over the course of over the course of time. Okay. So, the Naugulamere... Is being made in, um, in Doriath. Five oh two. The dwarves invade Doriath. Uh, Thingol is slain and his realm ended. Melian returns to Valinor. Beren destroys the dwarf host at Loreal Okay, um. Th- m- most of that sounds familiar, right? At oh, least. From a published Silmarillion standpoint. Okay, that's the old story. Baron destroying the Orf the Orf Orf host. The dwarf host. Um, that's uh not only familiar from the published Silmarillion, um, no reference to Treebeard, of course, but um, uh, but this is familiar. but it's also familiar from the Quentin Olderinma. This is part of the early story, right? Five oh six. The second kinslaying. So, four years later, the second kinslaying happens, which is the the death of Dior, right, the son of Baron and Luthien. 507, the fall of Gondolin, death of King Turgon. 508, the gathering of the remnants of the elves at the mouths of Sirion is begun. Okay, so we're getting. Um, the fall of Dargathron is ages ago now, right? but many of them came to Doriath, we're told. So Doriath was just totally trashed. And so notice 506 and 507 are respectively the final ultimate fall of Doriath and the fall of Gondolin, right? So uh, that's where all the refugees had been in one place or the other. So how, when those two kingdoms are destroyed, which he's making happen within one year of each other, um, we are... Uh, uh, we now have the last uh, elves, just all refugees, right? And that's when we get the gathering at the mouths of Syrian. Okay, 524, 16 years later, Tuor and Idril depart overseas. 525, the voyages of Earendil begin. 529, the third and last kinslaying. 533, Eärendil comes to Valinor. Four years in between uh, the kinslaying and the arrival in Valinor. Eight years between the beginning of the voyages of Eärendil and his arrival in Valinor. 540, the last free elves and remnants of the fathers of men are driven out of Beleriand and take refuge in the Isle of Balar. So The fathers of men are there too with the last three elves, right? Um, so we've got, it It was founded, the beginning of the gathering of the remnants was in 508, um, but now 32 years later, uh, you know, the Isle of Bauar is everybody at the end, right? That's where all the, it's the only the only in place in Beleriand anymore, right, is the Isle of Balar. All of the remnants of elves and men Are all there? By the way, I'm I'm noting things like the years that are passing because remember that's kind of the point of this document. He's told these stories elsewhere, right? He has annals for this, right? But um, here he is going through in this abbreviated form in order to keep all this stuff straight. We know he is thinking a lot about the years and the gaps of time and trying to make it all work. Not in the, I'm going to do big tables and lots of long division like he's going to get to maybe 10 years later than this, right? But he's definitely at the point where he's trying to work out this um, this chronology. Yeah, I would think A. Arendel probably fought Ungoliant um, sometime, you know, between uh, obviously between 525 and 533. But yes, this would have pre- presumably, I think have been happening, still happening then, but it's hard to say. Um, okay, 550, 547. The host of the Valar comes up out of the West. Fionwe, son of Manwë, lands in Beleriand with great power. Fionwe son of Manwë, lands in, lands in Beleriand with great power. You no know, um okay fionwe hasn't been the son of manwe for quite a while um did he even still have that in 1937 i think maybe he did um yeah yeah um I'd have to double-check the text. Um, I found Christopher's introductions, his sort of treatments here, a little bit confusing. But I think um, this version of the Tale of Years... um, I don't think this is 1937. This is after he said... um, I mean, I, I I included it before. Uh, yeah. Much later, a new version of The Tale of Years was made, and this alone will concern us here. He's not quoting from the version of The Tale of Years that he said he ought to have included in Volume 5, the one that was written in 1937. This isn't that. He says what he says, At least if I'm understanding correctly. He says, it, that is, The Tale of Years that concerns us here, clearly belongs with the major work Carried out in 1951 to two. Unless I'm, uh, uh, unless I'm misunderstanding, I'm going going back and looking. Um, yeah, no, he's still talking about the gray annals in the paragraph right before he begins um, with this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Yeah, that is really uncertain. Uh, uh, he says, it will make things clearer, however, to give the text of the entries for those years as they were first written. Uh, y- what does that mean? As it was first written in 1937? Because he's also talking about as it was first written in manuscript form before it was like a typescript was made of it. because he talks about that process also. Um, yeah, right before uh, of the latter part, there's little to say. It agrees closely with the gray annals. And he's talked about the TypeScript. Um, yeah, right. So Tolkien is working off of the 1937 version, but I don't think. I, I again, I might be misreading Christopher. Uh, I, like I, 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 I'm, I found this part confusing myself. But I think that Christopher is saying that this is the first version that he wrote in 1951 to two, and then revised. That's why Christopher is giving it as A, B, and C. Um, Christopher's normal—I mean, even just looking at Christopher's normal editorial approach, um, the way when he gives like uh, when he talks about A, V one in AV2, like Annals of Valinor one and Annals of Valinor two. Um, he tends to number major revisions separated by decades by numbers like that. And when he talks about version a version B and version C, he's usually talking about parallel versions of the same text. Like Tolkien writes a manuscript. He then does a typescript and then he annotates the typescript. Right. And so he'll call, you know, uh, uh, the, the first manuscript one, text A, he'll call the typescript text B, and then he'll call the substantial annotations or the you know, revisions made in ink on the typescript later on text C or something like that. Like that's normally uh, Christopher's approach whenever he does this stuff. Um, uh, and so I think since Christopher calls these versions of the... Um, Since he calls these versions of the Tale of Years A, B and C, I was uh, I was under the impression that he meant those were written in 1951 and that this A version is just this is like the the manuscript that he's starting with uh, before we get to the to the to the to the the rest of it. Um, Right. Yeah, exactly. That seems to me a fair reading of it uh David Michael, it is very difficult to track through it it's It's super hard um but um uh, fortunately Christopher is Mary, is very um consistent in how he uh, how he like his nomenclature in this way um the a b C and the one and two and even the Roman numerals like with the two different ver- remember the b parentheses Roman numeral one and b parentheses Roman numeral two was like the the original and the carbon right of the carbon copy b uh TypeScript um you know of um, of the Miguel thing. Um anyhow, um yeah, so it's it's tough there, but um uh Right, so I just go back I didn't include it in the text, but just to to read a little bit of that to you. Um as the manuscript was originally made in which condition I will distinguish it as a, the entries from 500 to the end, very brief, followed the first Word of the Rings version, the 1937 version, of the Tale of Years closely. My father clearly had that in front of him and did no more than make a fair copy with fuller entries, introducing virtually no new matter or dates not found in AB2. It will make things clearer, however, to give the text of the entries for those years as they were first written. Okay, so this is the manuscript version. He is working off of the 1937 Tale of Years, which Christopher hasn't given us. But it's one of the reasons he hasn't given it to us is it's basically this, right? Okay. So, when Tolkien is including elements which are plainly linked or derived from the stories that Tolkien... like the versions of these stories that Tolkien had written... Back in, you know, between 1928 and 1937, it makes sense why that would be so, because he's working off the 1937 version. But nobody's forcing him to repeat those, right? But let's, let's operate under the hypothesis that where there seems to be what I would call at the risk of sounding invidious, making you know, an invidious distinction, um, regression. Right. That is so um, uh, going back to, for instance, um, uh, Fionnwë, son of Manwë. Right. That sounds like a reversion to a much earlier concept that he's rejected a long time ago. Um, Is he really going back to Manwë having kids? You know, to the Valar procreating? Um, So let's hypothesize that where we see things like that or possibly even things like the Nagwimir being made in Doriath um, or um, Baron destroying the dwarf host at Rath L'Oreal, let's hypothesize that Tolkien is merely transmitting, like, this is just a copy he's making for himself. He's not composing here. He's not, this is not part of a creating or inventing process for him. He's just like, I'm gonna, this is the base. I'm going to start with this. I'm going to start with um, uh, what I wrote in 1937. I have to admit that I find that hypothesis a difficult one to maintain. um, Just because it strikes me as very different from anything we've ever seen Tolkien do. Um, Tolkien never just repeats something he even something he just wrote without starting to grow it. Right. Um, I'd be surprised if Tolkien was merely like, let me literally just for the sake of making a fair copy, let me make a fair copy. Why would he make a fair copy? A fair copy. Um, So the um, fair copy, that's a technical term. When Christopher says that, he says he did no more than make a fair copy with fuller entries. Um, Fair copy is a technical term. It doesn't just mean, oh, my old notes are kind of moth-eaten and and uh, I can barely read them, so let me make a neater version. It's not just a neater version of an old set of notes. A fair copy means something that you have written out really nicely in order to present it to somebody else, right? It's the difference between a draft and a copy that you intend for circulation, right? Um... And um why would he do that? Why would he go b if he already knew he was going to be changing these stories? If his if he if he was already in the middle of that process, why would he make a fair copy of something from nineteen thirty-seven that he was just going to be updating? Um so simply I'm gonna force myself through this process of merely Recopying what I wrote, turning off my critical thinking skills, right? Turning off my my invention uh, thing, which I don't think Tolkien ever could turn off. Um, and then, and then I'll then I'll come back to it. Then I'll then I'll develop it from here. That strikes me as very non a very non Tolkien way to uh, to approach things, right? Um, what I wonder, um, what I can imagine. Do you think this might have been the beginning? Here's another hypothesis. What if... You're Tolkien. You just wrote, well, I'm back, and pushed yourself back from the table. Right? You went and had a a long nap. (laughs) After that, the next night... It's writing time. You finished The Lord of the Rings. You're like, "Well, time to turn back to the Silmarillion." Right. Now that I'm done with that, I'm all fired up to go back and work on the first age material. Where do you start? What do you do? Um, you've not really, you've done some stuff because you're Tolkien, right? So, that means you've been working on The Lord of the Rings for 12 years, but you didn't like it, wasn't you, you? You did other stuff too, right? You didn't like leave the elder days behind completely while writing the Lord of the Rings, and you know, you just recently spent a whole bunch of time inventing a new then the Adonaiic language and the whole Numenor stuff and, and all that kind of thing, and writing the Notion Club papers and whatever. So, you know, you've been doing other things too, but um, but it's time now to go systematically back through. And, uh, you know, so it might not be the day after. Like, you know, it might, it might be a while after. Anyway, the point is, um, um, what do you do? Evil Dr. Cannon suggests what you do is go back and work on the Children of Horan in a literative verse. <laughs> Very likely. <laughs> Very likely. Um, what I can imagine easily is that, so you go out and you're pulling out boxes of the stuff that, you know, most of this stuff you haven't really touched. You remember uh, the, he- with the heaviness of heart with which you put these papers in this box and closed that box, you know, 13 years ago. Uh, it's like 1950 now. Um, in 1937, when you, briefly your hopes were so high that The Silmarillion was going to get published mm-hmm. right after The Hobbit. Um now you're opening that box again that you haven't opened since 1937 ish, and you're going through. Oh, look at this. Hey, it's the Quentin Older Inwa. Wasn't that awesome? Oh, my goodness. Look at that. There's, uh, you know, the Quentin Silmarillion that I didn't finish. Oh, hey, look, it's the Hlamas. It's the Tale of Tongues. How co- The Tree of Tongues. How cool. Um, and um, uh, where do you start? I mean, it's like piles and piles, of big box or multiple boxes, right? Um, how do you, where do you go? What do you do? Well, well, you wrote those annals, right? Which was supposed to be like an, a, you know, sort of a more condensed version, though, you know, you got kind of carried away with it. Um, so there's the annals of Valinor and the annals of Beleriand in there, right? So maybe you look for those and, hey, look, there's a, ta- you do that Tale of Years thing. Well, that's short, right? Look at that short and easy synopsis. There, the tale of years would represent in chronological outline form the 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 story the the stories of the elder days as they stood when you finished up with them in 1937, right? So, what do you do? What's well, step one? Of what comes next. Start there, right? Maybe you start there. Maybe you start there, and you say, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write these out, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna copy these out." You're copying, so you're talking. You have two ways of writing, right? You either write unintel, you know, uh, like illegibly, because um, you're writing super fast while you while you create. Or you write gorgeously, right? There's really no in between. So actually there kind of wasn't in between, but anyway, there's not much in between. So, so you're like, okay, since I'm doing this and I'm like, I like this, but I'm going to do a fair, I'm going to start with a fair copy of that because that's, this is the story, right? So I'm going to go and I'm going to read and this making a fair copy of this old document would be a great way of like reimmersing myself in these stories. Right. So I'm going to make a fair copy of that old document and then we can then I'll, I'll know just where we need to do in order to finally. Because I need to pick back up the process that I had to cut short in 1937. Right. So if I want to pick up there again, what better way than to start off by making a fair copy of the 1937 Tale of Years? Right. Um, uh, so maybe that's what happened. So maybe what we're seeing here is not like a reversion. This is not like, hey, this is inconsistent with the later stories. The later stories maybe haven't happened yet. What if, what if, that's all I'm asking. What if the later stories had not happened yet? What if he's writing these things out in fair copy? It's hard for me to imagine Tolkien bothering. If he'd already decided that these things weren't true, even the son of Manway business, right? If he'd already been like, oh, yeah, no way, not touching that one with a 10-foot pole anymore. Right? Thou art totally don't procreate. Right? Forget about that. If that was his frame of mind in 1950, I can't imagine him doing a fair copy of that. He'd have changed it. He could have changed it right here. Right? But it hasn't changed it right here. And the best reason I can think of for him not changing the things that he's not changing in this summary is if he hadn't made up his mind to change them yet. But we know these things though they are obviously consistent with the story as it stood in 1937, are inconsistent with almost everything else that he wrote from 1950 forward. That's an exaggeration, right? But anyway, the point is, like, there is the new versions of the story, and there are significant differences, and many of those differences are not represented. Right? Like, this is consistent with 1937, not with 1951. But what if it ain't 1951 yet, <laughs> right? What if he's not there? What if this is the beginning of the next phase? Just a little fantasy of mine, just a little, uh, indulge me in my little what if scenario here. This is just me trying to, um, trying to make sense of this document, um, because it strikes me as very unlike Tolkien's practice. Um, The fact that he is, um, the fact that he is, um, uh, the fact that he's tweaking things as he goes and adding some, as Christopher points out, tracks, right? Of course, even making a fair, I don't believe that Tolkien would be capable of ever making a fair copy of anything and just transcribing it word for word. He'd make tweaks. Um, Anytime he would make, he would make tweaks. Um, But yeah. Okay. Um, Anyway, let's keep going. I didn't even finish reading it. 1550 to 1597, the last war of the elder days. So notice Hmm. War of Wrath lasts 47 years. The last war of the Elder Days, and the great battle, is begun. In this war, Beleriand is broken and destroyed. Morgoth is at last utterly overcome, and Angband is unroofed and unmade. Morgoth is bound, and the last two Silmarils are regained. 1597. Maedros and Maglor, last surviving sons of Fëanor, seize the Silmarils. Maedros perishes. The Silmarils are lost in fire and sea. 600. The elves and the fathers of men depart from Middle-earth and pass over sea. Here ends the first age of the children of Iluvatar. Okay. There we go. Um, there we go. Notice the elves and the fathers of men depart from Middle-earth and pass over the sea. What... Um, presumably, he has them all go into the right spots, right? That is, I assume Toloressia and Numenor are all kind of folded into year, the year 600 here. Um I don't see any reason to doubt that. Um, I, I have to admit, when I first read that, I did a double take. Right. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> he didn't. He's not here thinking that the fathers of men are going to Doloresia. Like, they're not going to the same spot, are they? Because he doesn't say. Um, but I was like, no, no, surely not. Right. Again, he's not going to make a in 19, whatever it is, 49, 50, 48. Who knows? Right. Um, he's not going to make a fair copy of an earlier story, which didn't really integrate the Numenor stuff because that got developed much more. He was already working on the Numenor stuff, like the the Numenor material, the Numenor myth already existed, but didn't get really fully integrated uh, into the Middle-earth stuff until during The Lord of the Rings, of course. Um, But still, he's not going to... Write a fair copy that writes out Numenor, Right, so I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Um, okay, cool. So that's where we begin. Not uh, sort of shockingly unfar, right from uh, from the rest. We're um, we're running out of time. I don't want to begin stage B. So stage we'll, we'll get to we we'll get stage B and stage C. Um, Having established, though, with a little bit of difficulty, as we saw, um, having established kind of the beginning of what's going on here with his later dealing with the tale of years. Um, We'll come back to it next time and look at how it grows, uh, builds on this foundation um, and see uh, kind of where we uh, uh, kind of where we where we go. Anyway, um, this is uh, this is this is this is fun stuff. Uh, to work through, so we'll um, we'll we'll continue that with the tale of years. Um, go ahead and begin. Well, I mean, you can finish the book if you haven't yet. Um, part four, uh, the last section, is what we're going to be moving on to. Of course, after this, um, we may begin it next time. There aren't really any convenient breaks. I don't have a page. Just just read to the end. Read to the end. We'll start that next time probably, and then we'll finish it the time after that. And we'll. Um, uh, will be, and that should be done, I think two more sessions, I think, should do it for us, uh, on the War of the Jewels, uh, and then off to, till we have faces. So thanks everybody for joining me tonight and I will see you guys next week. Thanks everybody, bye now.